Trigger warnings for this episode include the discussion of violence, execution, and rape. Please proceed with caution. Where do you go when you are looking for places to belong? When we think of home, depending on who we are, this word may have many different connotations. In season one of this series, we travelled tens of thousands of miles, from San Francisco to Kyoto, from London to Jakarta, but we never investigated the space between the geographical borders. The word diaspora is defined as a population that is scattered across regions which are separate from its geographic place of origin. The term was originally used to describe the dispersion of Greeks in the Hellenic world, before describing the displacement of Jews after the Babylonian exile. In 2000, American sociologist Cindy Patton published Queer Diasporas, which she described as essays that explore how sexuality and sexual identity change when individuals, ideologies, and media move across literal and figurative boundaries. Patton continues by calling upon what she describes as the archaic, original meaning of queer, a movement aslant, sideways. So what happens when a movement aslant takes us beyond where we originated, to new and uncharted places? And what happens when those of us deemed untraditional in our gendered or sexual practices plant roots beyond the reach of dry land? Where do we begin with the history of queer life at sea? Welcome to Season 2 and Episode 19 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. Unless you have a strong stomach, and the good fortune to have grown up near the ocean, you have likely spent little time on board a boat or ship. For many of us, these vessels are predominantly transportation from point A to point B, and are usually only favoured over air travel in situations where the journey is too short or inaccessible for a plane, or flying is significantly more expensive. The vast majority of us will spend our lives only venturing into the water as a consequence of wanting to get somewhere, not necessarily to be there. But sometimes, some of us seek out these liminal, in-between spaces. In an unexpected twist, it was in one of these spaces that Season 2 of Slash Queer began. Having decided to travel in an economical and environmentally friendly manner as much as possible for this second season, and having grown up in a small seaside town where messing around on rowing boats with your friends was easier than finding somewhere more fun and safe to hang out as a teenager, I decided earlier in the year to legitimise my sea legs and acquire a skipper's licence. I hoped to eventually be able to travel by sea from one country to the other to conduct this research, and, in turn, buy myself some time to do my background reading and write scripts before landing in each location to conduct interviews. I wasn't expecting anything glamorous, and I definitely wasn't expecting anything queer. 
And then I was introduced to the Jotobori of Sweden. The Jotobori sailed in through London in the summer of this year and, at the encouragement of an enthusiastic taxi driver and my wannabe pirate younger sister, I decided to pay her a visit while she was in port. The Yotabori is a near-perfect replica of a ship launched in 1738, which sank in 1745, and she is now the world's largest operational wooden sailing ship. To walk her decks and breathe in the smell of tar on the ropes, the oak and spruce and fir that holds her together, is like walking back in time. Or, at least, back into the maritime museums I ended up in on school trips as a child. The crew, who are comprised of paid professionals, volunteers, and paying deckhands, is usually around 65 to 80 persons, many of whom sleep in hammocks in what would have been the cargo hold of the original ship. And they work in shifts, with each faction of the crew taking two four-hour shifts a day and squeezing their sleep in between. It would be a stretch to call their way of living glamorous, but the appeal was undeniable. When the opportunity fell into my lap to sail with her from Nice to Malta, the latter being a place where I was desperate to conduct some of my research, it felt too serendipitous to say no. I seized the opportunity with both hands, but I had no idea what to expect of my voyage. Before we get into the story of this passage any further, we should acknowledge that, although considered unusual in the modern day, throwing away domestic life for adventures at sea wasn't always the most unexpected path for a queer person such as myself to walk. Oftentimes, when we talk about gender and sexual diversity, we talk about ideas and concepts that are bound to a particular location as it is often through the cultures of a particular country that we develop a frame of reference for what is normal or abnormal with regards to our relationships with others and with our own bodies. But a seafaring life has, at times throughout different periods of history, been a refuge for gay and gender non-conforming individuals. If you know where to look, and I'll be honest, you really do need to know where to look as an academic, you will find a plethora of texts and publications whose sole focus is homosexuality amongst sailors and even pirates. From mid-20th century England and 18th and 19th century China, all the way back to the golden age of piracy from the mid-1600s to the mid-1700s. But you would not believe how much of this is behind a paywall. In fact, one of the PDFs I tried to download in preparation for this episode was priced at 174 euros. For something that feels significant in terms of how we understand these traditionally hyper-masculine communities, you'd think it would be a little bit easier to learn about. But what I could find, with the help of a few resourceful academic friends, was this. The history around homosexual behaviour at sea is complex and varied. In Sodomy and the Pirate Tradition, English Sea Rovers in the 17th Century by Robert Berg, Berg argues that due to the exclusion of women from seafaring practices, homosexual acts were usually the sole non-solitary sexual outlet for men at sea. 
It does, however, bear noting that these homosexual acts were not always consensual or even between adults, so we cannot and should not project any rosy, modern ideals about gay sexuality onto these occurrences. In The Practice of Homosexuality Amongst the Pirates of Late 18th and Early 19th Century China by Diane Murray, Murray explains that, unlike in Berg's explanation of seafaring life, the South Chinese culture was very different, and women and entire families were often involved in and present for life at sea. South Chinese pirates often had female partners and children sharing their cramped quarters, and women very often worked as hard as men on these ships, and held rank amongst and fought alongside their male counterparts. On these grounds, Murray argues, homosexual behaviour was likely more of a choice and less of a situation in which individuals sought out intimacy in spite of their usual sexual orientation. However, Murray based a significant portion of her analysis of, of texts detailing the detention and punishment of South Chinese pirates, and in doing so notes that punishment for homosexuality was less severe than piracy, and that detainees may have claimed to have been raped or sexually abused by captors and thus forced into piracy instead of being willing accomplices, in order to avoid being beheaded. Thus, the true sexual nature of South Chinese pirates is obscured by the nature under which much of the evidence around this subject was procured. Of course, the evolving nature of social perspectives on homosexuality also explains why much of this history is obscured. In Men and Metelletage, Sexuality and Same-Sex Relationships Within Homosocial Structures in the Golden Age of Piracy, Nicole Keegan reflects upon the rewritten narrative surrounding history's most famous pirate, Blackbeard, also known as Edward Teach. For clarity, metalletage is the French word for seamanship, and was an agreement made between buccaneers to share their incomes and inherit their partner's property in the case of their death. In addition, they would pledge to protect and fight alongside each other in battle, and otherwise act in each other's interest. Some historians have drawn parallels between metalletage and same-sex marriage. Keegan notes that, in A General History of Pirates, written in 1724, that Blackbeard is described in a way that, and I quote, allowed for sexual interactions between men, even as a passive participant, to be freely discussed. Whereas in a later interpretation, a 1974 biography of Blackbeard, the author maintains the heterocentric narrative of masculine pirates such as Blackbeard. Of course, this will not be our first time coming across the idea of homosexuality negating masculinity, but here it seems this conservatism has likely influenced how the history of seafaring communities has been recorded over the centuries. Our final port of call on the academic journey to making this episode was Hello Sailor, The Hidden History of Gay Life at Sea by Paul Baker and Joe Stanley. Focusing predominantly, but not exclusively, on the practices of men in the Merchant Navy between 1950 and 1980, this book effectively confronts, and at times, 
subverts the notion of the sailor as a hypermasculine ideal, particularly in the contemporary Western world, where masculine is often still equated to heterosexual. Once again, let's be realistic here, and acknowledge that in spaces ungoverned by larger forces or physically distanced from law-enforcing organizations, abuses of power can and did happen. This novel addresses the fact that younger men of lower rank on ships did face abuse and maltreatment when aboard some of these vessels, and that in some circumstances, sex between men of different ranks was about exercising power and not necessarily about emotional or physical intimacy. But Baker and Stanley's book also tells the story of gay men in particular seeking refuge at sea. In a time when homosexuality was still illegal in the United Kingdom in particular, seafaring seemed to naturally generate environments where effeminate behaviour and cross-dressing, not simply homosexuality, was tolerated and even celebrated away from the judgement of friends, family, and wider society, the queers, in their numbers, went to sea. But where does that leave us in the modern day? My plans to sail from country to country to conduct research did not, at any stage, account for finding much of these practices and values in contemporary seafaring circles. But when I boarded the Yotabori in early October, my assumptions were challenged radically, and they started with the ship's carpenter. This is where I must add a disclaimer for the quality of our interview audio. As it turns out, recording a conversation above a ship's engine is a challenge even for the most hardy of seafaring podcasters. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Iela uh, Gavelin, or Eli, if you want to. I work currently as the ship's carpenter on the East India Man Göteborg. And I've been here for a year, approximately, but I've sailed here a lot before. And I've been working on ships and with wooden boat building for the past 15 years. I noticed Eli when we were introduced to the crew because he was the first person who had his pronouns in his name tag. Communicating your identity like this was something I had seen a fair amount of in corporate spaces, but on a ship like this, it was the last place I expected to see it. Eli and I got chatting, and I told him the work that I do. Eli told me he was transmasculine. He had come to this realization during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was over the moon to be incorrect in my expectations of being the only trans person aboard ship. And I suddenly had a wealth of questions to ask him about who he was, what he did, and how on earth he ended up here. To start, I wanted to know what Ili would have to say about the state of LGBTQ plus social awareness in Sweden. Sweden is a country whose reputation in Europe is one of progressivism, but since their new right-wing government abolished their feminist foreign policy in October of this year, doubts have been raised about the stability of social equality in this country, and to what extent their reputation reflects the lived experience of Swedish citizens of marginalised identity. 
This was perhaps an unfair question to ask of someone who spent a vast portion of their time outside of the country. But I wanted to understand, as best as possible, how Ely came to find himself here and how that was or wasn't related to his memories of growing up queer in Sweden. When I was a teenager, I was pretty into the whole queer community in Sweden. But then uh, through various things that happened, I sort of fell out of that. And uh, then I ran away to sea. <laughs> so I kind of lost touch with the whole queer community in Sweden. So that I started dating guys back when I was convinced I was a woman. So then I sort of felt very ashamed of that and withdrew from queer events and the queer community as a whole. Lately, I've been trying to reconnect with that. I had the poor taste of realizing I was trans just as the pandemic hit, and then everything just kind of died, obviously. So I don't actually know super much about the queer world in Sweden. I think the climate, of course, compared to many other places in the world, it's open. It's definitely gotten better since I was younger. Uh, I remember when I, when I came out as queer to the age of 15, I once tried to leave the house with a pride flag and my dad stopped me because he was convinced I was going to get beat up. So it's definitely better since then. I worked for a long time on the, on the school ship sailing around with high school kids from Sweden. And uh, they were just so chill about it. They were just like, you know, somebody. There were like these queer kids dating each other and nobody made a big deal out of it. It was like the most natural thing. When I came out when I was a teenager, like people were pretty chill about it, but I still got the whole, you know, I still get people coming up to me and being like, that's disgusting. And like, are you going to try to make out with me now and all of that bullshit? So I think it is overall, it's gotten a lot better. You do see a big backlash with trans-related questions, which seems to be a trend in at least Europe and, uh, and the US at the moment. We definitely have that in Sweden too. Ely is carving a path for himself in impressive and formidable ways. First and foremost, living in this seafaring community away from the constraints and security of life on land, but also as a transmasculine individual working in carpentry, with the construction industry having long been dominated, at least in the mainstream, by what appears to be cisgender and heterosexual, often working class, men. Naturally, I had to ask him, how did he get here? And what is it like to be bucking the trend? I just uh, fell in love with ships, essentially. I sailed this boat when I was, uh, I turned 20 on board this ship, and uh, I sailed, sailed on her during the first China voyage, and that was like the most incredible thing that I'd ever done in my entire life. And I decided I want to do this for the rest of my life. I really like to uh, be very dramatic and say, for the rest of my life. <laughs> at age of 22 anyhow i decided to to do that and when i was 22 i went to boat building school and became a wooden boat builder or rather i started to learn about wooden boat building it's one of those professions that you never master fully and yeah so for me it's it stemmed from just a love of sailing and this ship in particular and from that came a passion for woodworking and uh, traditional carpentry, traditional uh, handicrafts. Uh, 
and arts like that, which I do feel very strongly about. And then me realizing I was trans was just kind of, just like a little bit unrelated to that. Uh, it is, of course, interesting that I ended up in a field like that. <laughs> that is so um, cis-normative and heteronormative. But I've also never really worked in any capacity as like a house carpenter or you know, on building construction sites or any, any such thing, where at least I think that's the most sort of place where that's the most prevalent. Uh, I've been spared from that. I've been on some boats that have been really, really shitty. But mostly, this is like, this is like where all the hippies hang out, all the, the dirty sailing hippies. <laughs> so generally, people are like, as cool as you kind of wish for them to be about it. Of course, as I'm sure you've noticed, there are a lot of like older men here that might not be totally chill with it. I think they know and they just ignore it or they somehow don't know either, even though I'm like wearing a pronoun pin and I'm like quite open about it. So, yeah, I mean, I've been spared, uh, I think, but sadly, this word still means you have to endure a lot of bullshit. <laughs> History is, as we are learning, rich with stories of gender and sexuality diverse peoples going to sea to avoid social persecution, or find a sense of community and connection with others, whilst occasionally being able to earn a livable wage. Ely's experience on the water far outweighs mine, and from his space in his carpentry workshop, he gets to watch the crew's comings and goings across all legs of the journeys that the Yotabori makes. As someone who is now woven so deeply into the fabric of this ship, I wanted to know, does he think queer culture exists at sea in the modern day? And how does the dynamic of a crew potentially help create connections like this? Yeah, I would say, I think it's really delightful. Now lately, I am just starting seeing all of these queer kids coming here. And uh, that was not my, that's not how it was for me at all when I started sailing. People were not openly queer at all. It was not a thing. Or I'm sure it was, but people were not particularly open about it. Now it seems to be much more either that people come here or that people are just more comfortable with being open about their identity in general. And uh, it makes me really happy. But it's interesting also to think about sailing like historically, how it has been a place where um, people have sort of come and been able to kind of, you know, the outcasts of society, they would come here, which is both like a beautiful thing and also you know, an unfortunate thing when you get these people who never had to like learn how to behave together with other people and are just, you know, kind of assholes and never had to change. But sometimes you just meet these people who are sort of accepted for their personalities and people are, they just let them be who they are, which is a beautiful thing. And I think definitely on board, on board ships, there is a big acceptance of people, uh, or at least on board the ships where I have been. Uh, or at least the good ships. <laughs> you you turn into this big dysfunctional family in a way that I think is really beautiful. And uh, here we're really lucky that most people are really great people. But even when you're on board with people that you might not be super fond of, you learn to coexist in this uh, way that I find fascinating. 
you kind of learn their quirks and uh, what they want and don't want. What kind of breakfast do you have to make sure is there? How do you hang the coils on this particular boson comes on board? And like, it's just all of this kind of managing of, of individuals. And I think for sure that that um, today, when in general there is bigger acceptance for for queer people, that uh, people are more much more open. It's not as big a deal anymore. So maybe it will become a queer utopia here on Shapes. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Yeah, for acceptance of uh, um, gender queerness, I sadly, as long as you still are a cis person or present as a cis person, people are cool with most things because they're used to seeing used to seeing people who are presenting in different ways and so forth. So that's not really a big deal. But to be open and talk about it can make people very uncomfortable, sadly. But I hope maybe in another 20 years we'll, we'll be in a place where everyone is perfectly chill about it. Naturally, we cannot extrapolate what Ely says here to represent all sailing communities. He knows that as well as I do. We cannot assume that the culture here on the Yotabori, the openness, the representation of queer individuals, is an example of the broader sailing community. But that isn't to say that what we have seen here is anomalous or a one-off. And I knew what he was talking about. There are names I will not share here, but I can attest to having found myself on this ship surrounded not only by people who accepted me, by people just like me. In a context like this, it would feel inappropriate to throw around labels like homosexual or bisexual. But the diversity of the crew indicated to me that connections were formed on the grounds of genuine care for one another and not inhibited by one's gender identity. Having lived and worked in places before where my identity as a gay and by extension queer person was treated as taboo or even unprofessional, this was not the standard set by the inclusive crew of the Yotabori. Ely and I finished by talking a little bit about what it means to be the representation when you can't find it, and how sometimes, in a space seemingly not built for people like us, it becomes a responsibility of ours to make us human instead of something mythological to the people around us. I tried to always be open about it when I was sailing with with the kids or just to, to make sure to always mention it in passing because I, just one thing that I never had growing up, like there was no visibility whatsoever. I was like, no, you didn't see queer people. You, you didn't talk about queer people. There was like once in school that there were some people who came there and, and said like, yeah, there are gay people. Like, I'm a gay person. And like, that was that. Then never again. Um, like a cryptid. Yeah, like a cryptid. Here's Mothman. <laughs> Mothman never came to my school. I'm so disappointed. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, but I always made sure to sort of mention that in passing so that they would know that that was an option. This is, I hope the first of many episodes where we will get to look at the history of gender and sexuality diversity at sea. 
And what I found on the Yotabori sets the bar incredibly high for what I hope to find next. There is, undeniably, more that can be done on the Yotabori to foster an accepting and diverse community here. The majority of the crew on board were Swedish, and as is the cultural stereotype, many were white and fair-haired. Not to say that this crew was in any way homogenous in race, but that my questions around how accessible practices like sailing are for racial minorities have persisted, even after this trip. But I saw those conversations happening on ship, about how we open doors to opportunities like this to a broader range of people. The sentiment that seemed to emerge during my time on ship, quite simply, and in a way that shouldn't seem radical at all, was that many of us are out there. The queer diaspora exists. Beyond the constraints of geographical borders, we are going about our lives as we would on land. Working jobs, looking out for one another, but with none of the heterosexual or cisnormative constraints we might be afraid of when heading off to sea. The crew of the Yotabori are professionals of the highest order. They ensured we were all safe and secure both physically and psychologically for the entirety of our passage to Malta. And many of them were also queer. These two truths go hand in hand. Where do you go when you are looking for places to belong? When we think of home, depending on who we are, this word has many different connotations. In season one of this series, I travelled the equivalent of one and a half times around the Earth. I have crossed borders and seas many a time to find out what gender and sexuality looks like in countries around the globe. I have, perhaps short-sightedly, often believed in the power of geographical places to be where like-minded people, people on the margins, congregate. When I set out for season two, I had vague plans in mind to perhaps interview someone about what it is like living at sea, moving from one place to another. I had no idea what to anticipate of my time aboard the Utabori. Never in my mind did I imagine that our first episode would become a love letter to her. I told visitors who roamed her decks when we hosted our open ship days in Malta that I believe, now more than ever, in the power of the village. Not merely a concept of rural life, and I say that as someone who grew up in a county best known for farming. The village is not about the ecology or the labour that a geographical location is known for. The village is a concept of human behaviour, a way in which we design our lives around each other. Villages are where everybody knows everybody, where we all pitch in, earn our keep, feed each other and keep each other entertained. We laugh over meals, we towel each other down when the rains come in, we teach each other something new. When you are queer, 
this becomes so much harder to find. Villages, as I have often known them, require you to go through the motions of upholding particular values in order to belong. Values like heterosexuality, identifying with your birth gender, aligning with gender roles and having domestic ambitions. None of these things were required of me aboard the Yotabori. I broke bread with women and their girlfriends. I shared my experiences of taking testosterone with the transmasculine carpenter, and I watched people of the same gender fall in love between shifts and under the stars as we sailed across the Mediterranean. There are people on that ship who love me. There are people on that ship to whom I was not just communicable, I was seen and understood, and I believe I am missed. Ely joked about the queer utopia, and yes, for a moment, let's not be idealistic. No place can be without miscommunication or misunderstanding or hurdles to be faced in how we accept and respect one another. And there is still so much to be done to increase the inclusivity of these kinds of spaces. But for the first time in my life, I feel what I imagine some sailors have felt for many generations. Escaping to sea to be with their comrades, their peers, with whom nothing needed be unsaid or hidden. And the feeling is incomparable. I hope to return to the Yotabori in the late winter, following research I plan to conduct in Malta, Turkey, and South Africa. And I will take my brain where it needs to go. But if you get lucky, and you can look out over the Mediterranean Sea to Barcelona, you might see where I left my heart, safe in the village. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith, scripted and produced and hosted, as always, by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Eli Gafillin for his wonderful contributions to this episode, as well as Jared Mustafa Holzapfel for his assistance with background research. Thanks also to our loyal Patreon subscribers. The pennies you drop into our project are the very meals I eat in some of the world's most dubious hostels. If you're not a patron and you want to support the podcast, you can find the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages. We are still selling all our Slash Queer merchandise on Threadless and are still accepting donations via coffee and you can find the links to both in the description for this episode. It is so good to be back in the driver's seat of Slash Queer, and I would be over the moon to have a wee bit of your support as we continue to make this project happen. Finally, I would like to dedicate this episode to the brave, bold, and brilliant crew of the Yotabori of Sweden. You have my love, my gratitude, and my devotion and I cannot wait to be back with you all very soon. 
This episode was recorded on location on the Yotabori of Sweden. Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at slash queer, or email us at slash queer at outlook.com. Until we reach dry land, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer. <laughs>